The act of not pursuing your dream, of not following where your soul wants to take you, is not without cost. You don't get away free from that. That force that's inside you that wants to be born and wants you to give birth to it, if you don't give birth to it, it doesn't just go away. It goes into other channels, and those channels are negative channels, and it will start to work against you and be worse and worse and worse. It's not like just a luxury to live out your dream or your calling. It's an imperative. Ladies and gentlemen, that nugget of wisdom was from the one and only Stephen Pressfield. Now, if you are like me, then the book, The War of Art, was transformational. Uh, it is sold hundreds of thousands of copies, if not millions. And when I read that book, it's a book about resistance for those of us, those creators and entrepreneurs, those of us who are trying to make something really special out of this one precious life. It spoke to me as if he was in the room, in my head, actually, whispering in my ear all the, the deep, dark secrets. And what we get in today's episode with the legendary Stephen Pressfield is a lifetime of writing this kind of work. Not only has he written The War of Art, but other books like The Artist's Journey, uh, Turning Pro, Nobody Wants to Read Your Shit, and Other Tough Love Truths. He is uh, special in his ability to capture the voices that we creators and entrepreneurs have in our heads. He puts it out there in in books. Again, he sold millions of copies of these books in such a way that not only are they relatable, but it helps us overcome some of these stuff. Because when we know that other people are experiencing a lot of the same challenges that we are, it makes us feel less alone, makes us feel more human, and also that we can do it. Now, this episode is not just you know, full of fluffy, um, I don't know, sound biteable, tweetable things. There is actionable how to break through resistance. There are very tactical things that Stephen shares that I haven't heard from him in, in uh, other interviews that I've heard him give. So um, it's been a couple years in the making to have Stephen on the show. Very, very excited with how it turned out. I can't wait. So I'm going to get out of the way. I want you to enjoy uh, yours truly in conversation with the legendary Stephen Pressfield. Hey, today's episode of Chase Jarvis Live is powered by Creative Live. That's right. If you've been subscribed to the show for a while now, you know all about Creative Live. You heard me talk about it. It's in the books that I've written. You know that it is the best way to learn skills and explore your curiosities with learning from the leaders in every creative discipline in entrepreneurial space, from photography, video, design, to building an online business and ultimately living the life of your dreams. It's all possible with a Creative Live subscription, and you're taking a big step right now if you go check it out at creativelive.com slash creatorpass. That's right, C-R-E-A-T-O-R-P-A-S-S. Now, for a little more than 100 bucks, you can access the entire Creative Live library with more than 2,000 classes from the world's top creators. So, where do you go to get this offer? Again, go to creativelive.com slash creatorpass, C-R-E-A-T-O-R-P-A-S-S. New classes are added every week and we're always streaming content for free if you want to check it out. Please let me know what you've learned most recently. I'm always interested in hearing your stories and I'm happy to amplify and give you a high five on social if you tag me at Chase Jarvis with what you're learning. So beyond that, let's get back to the show. Steve. 
Stephen Pressfield, it's been a long time coming. Super happy to have you on the show. Welcome. Hey, thank you, Chase. It's great to be here, and I'm looking forward to seeing where this uh, adventure takes us. Great. Uh, I'm going to start off with the zinger. You waged war in the name of art early on with the, uh, an amazing book called The War of Art. Why did that come about? Um, well, when you're um, a working writer, as I'm sure you know in the world of photography, yes, friends come to you and they say, I got a book in me, you know, how it helped me. So I would spend, you know, evenings staying up till two in the morning with friends trying to sort of psych them up, you know, to get them over their resistance, their fear, their doubt and everything. And uh, of course, nobody ever listened to me. Nobody ever wrote. Only one guy ever actually wrote a book. And um, so finally, in all seriousness, after doing this like about six or seven times, I just said, I'm going to just write this down and then I'll say, here, read this. You know, I won't have to do this again. So that was how I just sort of banged the war of art out in about four months and um, never expecting that it would, you know, have the life that it's come to have. Well, we'll, we'll go back to uh, the early, early Stephen Pressfield and, and works of fiction and, and other stuff. I think I really want to get dive deep into your creative process, but I do want to keep pulling on this thread since we opened with the war of art. Uh, fascinating story that your friends were not really taking the advice. And now that you've written it down, it is, you know, it is a staple in every creative circle. I've recommended it hundreds of times. I myself took a lot of value. Was it just the play on words, the title, you know, with the, uh, with the other, the art of war, or is there some element that you feel like we as creators, entrepreneurs, um, people who are seeking our you know, the highest version of ourselves. Is there some war that we have to wage in order to, to, to uh, accomplish these dreams and put this work out there into the world that's, that's in us? Well, uh, first, let me give credit for the title. The War of Art actually wasn't my title. It came from my partner and my editor, Sean Coyne. That was his. He came up with that title, which I think is a great title. Brilliant. Uh, but uh, very definitely, I mean, I'm sure you know this, Jason, deep in your bones, that uh, the, the inner struggle of just sitting down, you know, like I say, that the writing is the easy part. The hard part is sitting down in front of that or any creative thing, that uh, it is a war and there is an enemy. And I call it resistance with a capital R. And, and the way I usually define it, I'm, I'll call this up again, is it's this negative force that radiates off of that keyboard, at least in my case. I don't know where it does with a photographer. But at the, like I say, at the start of the book, there's a secret that real writers know that wannabe writers don't know. And the secret is that it's not the writing that's hard. What's hard is sitting down to write. And I think that... Uh, that just struck a chord in the book. People reading it, they said, ah, yeah, you know, that's me. I have a hard time sitting down. I do procrastinate. You know, I do have self-doubt. I do have uh, a psych myself out. I do self-sabotage. And um, I think that was that was the chord that, that the book struck. When you, this is true. And so let's just keep, keep on this tack, tack here, the resistance, capital R. Thank you for giving that word a capital R. <laughs> it deserves that capital letter. And as you've already you know, indicated a couple of times, uh, just 
you know, you, you came at this originally through writing, but what we know this to be true for any creative endeavor when you're sitting down to pour your heart into something that there is this resistance. Uh, and I'm imagining that you know, most people who are listening are, have either read the book or are familiar with it, but I do believe there are going to be some people for, for whom this is new, new work to them. Talk a little bit more about resistance and specifically then talk about some of the tools that you have prescribed uh, to, to play through this stuff because it is, you know, it's the, probably the single biggest blocker between us and our greatest, you know, creative achievements. Well, if, if, uh, if you've ever bought a, um, an abdominal machine or a treadmill and brought it home and found it collecting dust in the attic, then you know what resistance is. Resistance is that force, that negative force that stops us from doing the things we know we should. I always say that if, you, if you're starting at, the, at this level in terms of your soul and you're trying to go to a higher level, either morally, ethically, creatively, politically, that's when resistance will come in. It never comes in when you're going to a lower level. Um, and it just seems to be a force of nature. It, you know, and the thing of it is, nobody teaches you this in school. It should be almost the first thing that you're taught in your life, I think. But because you think, well, I want to write a book or I want to be a photographer. I want to start a podcast. I want to open a, you know, start a company or something that the, the playing field is level. I'll just do it. But in fact, it's not level. It's really stacked against you. And it's stacked against you because of this force that's in your mind. And uh, everybody knows what it is. I, I've had, Chase, really, I've had probably 5,000 emails from people over the years. And people will say to me, the voice in my head is telling me this, that, you know, you're no good. Your, your idea is old. Everybody's been done. And it's always the same voice. It's not like each person has a different, it's the same voice. So... That's what resistance is. And my, I've, uh, I've tried a number of things to combat it myself in my own life. And what works for me, you said we can talk long, so I'm going to talk long here. Yeah, please do. Uh, People aren't here for the half version. They want, they want to go deep with Stephen Pressfield. What worked for me is the concept of turning pro, which is also a book of mine, the second book after the War of Art. And the concept behind that is that when we're falling prey to resistance, we procrastinate, we don't do the job, we get 99% of the way done and we quit, that sort of thing. It's very easy to blame ourselves, you know, and to say that we're weak or lazy or we're sick or whatever it is. And that's counterproductive. That doesn't do any good at all. But if we can think of ourselves and say, well, we're making a mistake and the mistake we're making is we're thinking and we're acting like amateurs. And the correction for that is to act like a pro. So what is an amateur and what is a pro? An amateur is like a weekend warrior, is a dabbler, is somebody that's sort of halfway in and halfway out. So that, let's say you're trying to write a book. Let's use that as an, as a, as an, as a, an example here. An amateur, when, it, when she or he first hits adversity, will quit, will bail out, right? If... Uh, self-doubt, whatever it is comes in and it's too strong, they'll just bail out. But if we can sort of flip the switch in our mind and just say to ourselves, I'm a pro, I'm a professional, I'm going to think like a professional, 
And when I hit adversity, a professional just digs in. Think about Michael Jordan. Think about Kobe Bryant. Think about Tom Brady. Think about anybody like that that you just know is never going to quit. And and uh, another thing about a professional is a professional plays hurt. I'm thinking now of athletes, right? You, If we wait as artists or entrepreneurs for the day when we're, quote unquote, injury free to do our job, we're never going to do it, right? We're There's always something wrong. There's always something in our lives, our personal lives, our professional lives, whatever, that we could use as an excuse to not do the work. And so to think of ourselves as a professional, say, if I were a professional, would I stop because of this force? And the answer is always no. There's no way I'm going to stop. So that's what's really helped me. And then this new book I have out, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into that soon, or it's coming out. It's, uh, it's called Put Your Ass Where Your Heart Wants to Be. And that's kind of another way of getting over resistance. In that case, we, we could talk about that if we want to. But basically, the gist of it is put your body in the spot where you where your soul wants to be and things will start to work. Keep keep we're going to go there. Keep going. So if the concept go one layer deeper on what do you mean by putting your body where your heart wants to be? Is that in the writer's chair or behind the camera or uh you know on the other side of the business plan? What do you mean by that? Exactly, exactly. Like if you were I knew I know when I was a, a young person in New York City, I had friends who wanted to be photographers. And the smart ones became assistants to established photographers, right? And, you know, they would load, this was back in the day of loading the cameras and doing all that kind of stuff. And that is a case of putting your ass where your heart wants to be, putting your physical body. So now, instead of being a wannabe dreamer, you're actually in the studio every day working with a professional who's a mentor, who's, who's somebody you admire. And every day you're going to get better and better and better. And you're going to be more steeped in the concept of being a professional and you're going to get better and better. Now, being a writer, if you want to be a writer, the this, this simple answer is sit in front of a freaking keyboard and just hit it every day and do it for years, you know, do it for the next 30 years. Um, but uh, seriously, that there's no substitute for, um, and that, well, let me go to a secondary level of this since we're talking, giving long answers. Yes. Another way to do this is to physically, we're talking about moving, putting your ass where your heart wants to be, is to physically move lock, stock, and barrel, pack up the cat, pack up the kids, pack up the spouse, and move to the place in the world that is kind of the epicenter of your dream. For instance, if you want to be in country music, move to Nashville. If you want to be in fashion, move to New York or Paris or Milan or whatever. If you want to be in the movies, come to L.A. And that's by moving your physical body to that place, all sorts of good things happen. I mean, you simply you meet people, you know, you meet other people. And pretty soon after you've been in a, in a place uh, for six months or whatever, you have a whole cadre of friends that are in the field that you want to be in. And they're your real friends. They're friends that share your dream, that they themselves have committed and moved from wherever city they were to this place where their dream can come true. So that's two sort of physical examples of why moving your physical body to the place where your dream can come true, there's a magic to it. There really is. And there's just regular everyday 
um, payoffs to it. Let's let's explore this. You know the the, the maybe even cliche at this point, but the, the phrase you know you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. I have, and I, as as a lifelong artist myself, someone I, I I believe deeply that your craft, you know, being good at your craft is actually not the differentiator. That's the get in the door for you. Like, you're not good at something, you got to get good at it. And then once you're good, you'd be surprised how many people are in the arena of really good at this, whatever it's photography or writing or building businesses, and. So there has to be other differentiators and what seems like a curse word or uh, uh, something that no one wants to talk about, but I call this work the other 50%, which is, you know, as you talked about in, you know, put your ass where your heart wants to be is like the, the circle that you spend the most time in. You talked about, you said, these are your real friends. Mm -hmm. Say more about that and, and help us understand how important your community, for lack of a better word, the community that you put yourself in, how much that matters? Well, it matters completely, as you know. You know, it's, it's um, particularly when you're starting out and you're trying to learn the craft or whatever it is, then your community usually consists of mentors or bosses or supervisors or people that you admire and that you're trying to copy and trying to learn from. And so that is so helpful on so many ways, so many levels, right? Because that's how you really learn. I don't think you really learn reading books or anything like that. You learn from watching somebody, watching somebody do, I'm sure. I mean, that's like being a photographer's assistant. That's a lot of what it was about. How does a photographer set up the day? What's his mindset? You know, all of those things are so important that you can't learn except by watching and being there. And then the other aspect, of course, is your peers. The other people, like if you're a beginner, the other beginners that you're that you're working with. Like for me, my world of that was Hollywood, trying to be a screenwriter. And you find that, I mean, the way success happens in the real world is you start out at the bottom and you have friends who are also broke and starving, right? Everybody's waiting on tables and stuff like that. And then one person gets a job and starts to rise and they bring the other people, you know? So your peers, like uh, someone, if you're an actor, let's say, a friend of yours will get cast in a play and then something will happen. Somebody will get sick in that play and your friend will say, well, hey, get Chase. He's, you know, he's a great, bring him in, you know? And the next, and we've heard that many times, right? That, that story of somebody that like tags along on an audition and the next thing you know, they're, you know, in the play. So your mentors and your peers, definitely, it's absolutely true that, and vice versa, if you have negative friends, that is really going to bring you down, you know? And, and um, getting back to the concept of resistance, when I say negative friends, what I mean by that are, People, everybody has resistance to their own dream, but some people have given into that resistance and they're doing other, they're doing shadow careers. They're doing things like they're doing drugs. They're distracting themselves. They're drunks. They're, they're self-dramatizers. They live in a world of, you know, creating their own drama. And if you're hanging around with those people, like you say, the sum of the five people that you know, those are bringing you down and it's hard sometimes to leave people behind, you know, because all the reasons that we all know, but sometimes it just has to be done. 
And in fact, there are a lot of movies like that. You know, um, David O. Russell, who did uh, uh, Silver Linings Playbook and The Fighter and Joy, that's his theme. It's the heroes of all of his movies are people who are being brought down by their families or whatever, whatever. And the what the arc of the hero in his stories is the hero breaks away from that that negative stuff and leaves people behind one way or another. Not that I'm advocating leaving everybody behind, but sometimes you do have to have to separate yourself from people that are uh, caught in their own resistance and pulling you down. Yeah, what is the price of this one precious life? What price are you willing to pay to not follow your dreams? Right. I think that's yeah. That's something that we yeah. all have to, you know, that's resistance in its own, you know, that's a, another, you know, piece of that resistance pie. If I may jump in for a second here, Chase. Please. Uh, when the, the act of not pursuing your dream, of not following where your soul wants to take you, is not without cost. You don't get away free from that. That, that negative, that, force that's inside you that wants to be born and wants you to give birth to it. If you don't give birth to it, it doesn't just go away. It goes into other channels and those channels are negative channels and it will start to work against you and, and be worse and worse and worse. So uh, it's not like just a luxury to live out your dream or your calling. It's an imperative. Hmm. Very, uh, that's a sound, that's a sound bite in itself right there. <laughs> you got, I'm going to quote your, I'm going to quote your own website back to you. Talent is bullshit. <laughs> Say more on that. Okay. This really actually comes from, uh, my first agent who was, when I was like 29, I think he was 75 or something. His name is Bart Fless. And, uh, he actually represented, uh, Carl Jung among other people. Wow. Uh, that could be good. <laughs> but that was his kind of his mantra, that talent is bullshit. That, and I, I certainly believe there's a lot of truth. I won't say it's true across the board. But if I assess myself, I don't really have a tremendous amount of talent. I think I'm, I'm very ordinary in terms of whatever gifts were, were given to me. But I've, I've, I've overachieved by hard work. And I certainly think that, that work is the primary factor in, in success. You can get better. I mean, it took me, I would say, to get just to the level of publication, let alone being good or anything like that, at least 25 years where I was just writing and writing and writing and then my stuff was shit, you know? And, you know, now, now people say that I have talent, but in fact, the same people said I was a bum for 30 years. So you can get better. And th there's no doubt. And work, work is the thing. I mean, who does see the, oh yeah, it was a Robert Greene. I saw a little thing of his, uh, on one of his uh, Instagram things where he was talking about uh, what is, what really creates success. And he was just saying it's habits. And which is another way of saying work of just simply doing the work every day, every day, every day, year, 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 year. And you know, you get better. Talent is not, there are a million people with talent. I'm sure you, you know that, Chase. There are millions. They're all over the place. Yeah. I could name so many people that have got so much more talent than I do, but they have, many of them have fallen by the wayside because they just couldn't hack 
the long haul, you know? It is a long haul. And I think hearing how long the haul is from someone who has sold millions of books as you have is helpful. So thank you for, for being vulnerable. The, uh, you know, there's a humility in, in which you approach this, but the reality is that you also, this, you have tapped into some talent and I'm wondering if you can articulate this relationship is maybe it's a chicken and egg, a cart horse. Let's talk about work and talent and how they play off one another. I'm curious your thoughts. Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. I mean, the process for me, and jump in here, Chase, and tell me your process as we're going, of over years and years was of trying to write, was I would write something and it was just, it was self-conscious. It was ego-driven. It was phony. It didn't seem real. It didn't have any, you know, it didn't have any energy. And for years and years, I was just thinking, why can't I break through to what at some level where this starts to have some energy and starts to work? And I think that in a way, you know, like they say in Zen, like in Zen and the Art of Archery, that there sort of comes, you try, you try, you try, you try, you try. And finally, you sort of give up. Like in that book, you know, Eugen Herigl's book, Zen and the Art of Archery, the deal was, he could never drawing the bow. He could. He was so self conscious. He'd always let it go too soon, let the arrow go too soon, or hang on to it too long. And the and his teacher in Japan was telling him, just let the arrow go by itself. You know, let it go. You know, but how do you do that, right? How do you not try so hard? And I think a lot of the payoff of work is if you just work and you work and you work and you work so hard. Finally, one day you just sort of give up. You know, and in the, in the form of being a writer, it's like you say to yourself, I'm going to stop trying to write like Hemingway. I'm going to stop trying to write like Fitzgerald. I'm going to stop trying to do what I think I'm supposed to And I'm just going to write my crap that I would do, you know. And and the, suddenly you find, wow, this is pretty good. This actually sounds like me in a way, you know, or this is, this is falling into an area that I love, you know. Um, so I think in a lot of ways – Work takes you to the place where you sort of give up. At least this is my experience. And um, and you just finally start singing in your own voice. You know, I, I, it is this kind of mysterious process. How did Herigel learn to let go of the arrow at the right point? But, it, but without that work, you're never going to get there, you know? So there's two sort of payoffs for work. One is you, little by little, you learn your craft. All right, little by little, you actually do get better. But also, and, I, and I'm a big believer, as you know, in the muse and in goddesses and in this other dimension. And I think that they are watching us, the, you know, the goddesses up there. And finally, when they've seen me work for 25 years, they say, all right, I'm going to give this guy a break. You know, he's done enough, you know, and then they let us have it, you know, and it does become you know, to use a Christian term, it's like grace in a way, you know, suddenly for no real reason at all, we're okay. We can finally do it. I'm going to quote Yoda, do or do not, there is no try. Yeah. yeah and true. It, so, but that's misleading because it sort of says, it's <laughs> fair. You know, it's sort of, fair to say. If, I'm, if I'm the guy that's trying, if I'm Luke Skywalker trying to raise the X wing, you know, he says, okay, do it. Well, okay, I'm trying to do it, you know? Um, 
I think you do have to try, 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 try. And finally, you, you can get to a level where it's easy and the, and the X-wing arises out of the swamp. Well, thanks for keeping me honest there on Yoda. <laughs> keeping Yoda on. Keep exactly all Yoda was had a, trying to pull the wool over her eyes there. Uh, so I think it was, that was very articulate and helpful. And the idea that... Let me ask you. Can I ask you a question, Kate? Of course. Yeah, this is your platform. You take us wherever we need to go in this time. When I first wrote The War of Art, I thought it was only for writers. And I was always amazed when like actors or comedians would write me. But in the world of photography, how does resistance you know, manifest itself in your world? How much time do you have, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have an answer. I want, I want to okay, hear it. Okay, I've been asking you for long yeah. answers. So for photographers, and I think just largely visual, visual artists, it comes through the stories that we tell ourselves about what it takes, the life that you have had to have lived in order to create great photographs ah. talk about you know i this is new to me i'm really interested i grew up in middle america my parents are still together uh my life was not a struggle therefore i'm not able to create great art that's i'm, I'm gonna list like 10 here don't you don't even yeah. try and stop me yeah yeah and another one is i don't have the right equipment because you know having a better camera Boy, that sure would help me. That's a that's a big blocker for me because I want to do this kind of photography and I can only afford this kind of camera. So the gear, the endless pursuit of the right, you know, instrument is wow. is always getting in the way. And then I don't have time. You know, I've got kids. I can't get up and get this epic light that every other photographer gets because I don't have time. I've got to get the kids off to school. And then the uh, you know, I don't have the skills to, or I don't have the time to learn new skills because everyone's doing all kinds of Photoshop to their images. Everything's so retouched uh, now. And I, uh -huh. There's all these skills that have, are between me and the dreams that I have. Uh, and, and the list truly could, <laughs> it is seemingly uh -huh. an endless list. And I don't remember who said it. Maybe it was Seth Godin, another longtime friend and guest of the show. I think he's like, you want to do good work? Show me all your garbage. <laughs> Show me all your garbage because what we get to, whether it's in photography and all of the garbage that would have come out on the other side of all of those excuses that I just shared, or if I asked you about writers and you know all of the things that you know writers resistance that we would say would be typical, what it comes down to it is most people who haven't found the fulfillment and or success that they seek in these disciplines, they just have not done enough work that's why Seth's like again i hope i'm nailing this with seth but i think it's just like show me your garbage show me your shit work and lo and behold you find out the people who want to be great and who we ask this question of can you show me your shit work there's just not very much of it uh-huh and then yeah. it goes back to the point that you said earlier about you know why talent is bullshit and the reality is is, is you are not going to be able to find your voice without putting in a certain amount of effort. And if you are right now listening to this show and saying, hmm, I don't actually have a signature style or I don't know what my signature style is or other people would not be able to recognize my signature style, the punchline is then you have not done enough work. Exactly. And this is the thing that no one likes to hear because it is a you know, long, lonely road and putting in the work 
if you sat there and you sat in front of your computer, I think it was John Cleese, you know, when, you know, fake artists wait for inspiration and the rest of us, we just wake up and get to work. Uh, and this, this idea, whether it's in photography, thank you for asking me about that. And if anyone would like to have a separate counseling session about all the other <laughs> things that, that get in your way as a photographer, I, I know many and I know them well as old friends. Um, but it is this, there's a certain volume, you know, the apocryphal story of the ceramics teacher who graded their students on the volume of work instead of the quality of the work, or they, they split the class into two and graded one half of the class on, you know, show me your best work. And then the other side of the class, like you have, I'm going to give you an A if you, you know, do N number of pots of any quality, what, what they found at the end of this story, this, again, it's an apocryphal story. I don't, I couldn't actually find the real, the real root of the story, but is the folks who were judged on volume way outperformed the other half of the class because of this repetition, this, uh, you know, repeated, uh, work, but not actually getting it exactly what they wanted. But the reality is that they were doing two things at once. They were discovering their style. They were honing their skills. And it turns out that's actually a great way of creating. Ah. So it, got, it does go back, which is one of the reasons I wanted to, you know, open that topic with you, this idea that talent is bullshit. Um, so that's really interesting to me. You know, I mean, what you were describing, Chase, of what was going through your mind, you know, you didn't have the right, you're, you hadn't suffered enough or you didn't have the right equipment. I mean, that's pure resistance, capital R resistance, right? And I'm quite sure if we had 50 visual artists here in a room and we had them each write on a piece of paper by themselves what that voice in their head was, it would be exactly the same voice. Yeah. So it's it's really fear of, of, of success, right? Fear of really being who you could be Fear, if that of putting it out there and really becoming that. And these are all the excuses. And of course, in the writer's brain, it's the same thing, right? You know, it is, it is. And yeah, I think that's a brilliant segue to your newest work. Put your ass is the title of the PDF that you sent me, which I love it. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a uh, shortened version of the title of the book, which is put your ass where your heart wants to be. Essentially the putting your ass is work, right? And it is a resistance of its own type to not put your ass. You talked earlier about the heavy, heavy price that it's, it's not benign, right? It's not benign yeah. to yeah. not follow your dreams. I'm very um, you know, our, our friend Brene Brown talks about this, this, you know, this unexpressed art actually carries a heavy burden. It, it, it this unexpressed, I would even say version of ourselves, right? Is, is there, there's a heavy price to pay for not expressing that. What was the rationale behind this work for you? What made you have to write this particular book, did it come from personal experience? Was it from counseling sessions with hundreds of people like me or any number of those 5,000 emails that you mentioned receiving earlier? Why this work? And this goes into a little bit of- Are you talking about the new book? Yes, I am. This goes into a little bit of, of creative process for Stephen Pressfield. Like, why did you have to write, put your ass where your heart wants to be? Um, it's interesting because I have like three other books that are that are just like that, that are in the works or that are different versions different ways of getting at the same thing 
what you were talking about, about your own mindset of, you know, of resistance. And I just think that uh, that phrase, because it has the word ass in it, it sounds kind of glib and superficial, but it's actually really, really deep and goes in deep, deep, deep levels. In fact, I would say that uh, every major religion, if we want to boil it down, all they're really saying is put your ass where your heart wants to be. But what they're, what they're really saying is take your, um, your ego, your material self, the self that you live in this, in this real world with, take that self and move it into the area of the soul where your heart wants to be. Stop living out of greed or fear or acquisitiveness or anything like that and start living out of uh, your gift to the world, whatever that is. That's really what Christianity is about, Judaism, Buddhism, Zoroastrianism. So uh, I just, it's fun for me. That book started just with the phrase, put your ass where your heart wants to be. It was kind of a fun phrase. But I thought to myself, let me dig into this deep. Let me go one level down and another and another and another and just see where, what it's there. Because I knew there was something really good there, you know, real meaty there. So that's how the book came out. I like to do things like that, to like to just find out what I think about something, you know, to write a book and just see what I really think. It's a way of being yourself. You know, I'm sure you do the same thing visually, you know. Oh, yeah. You just shoot this and see what the hell it looks like. For sure. And not all of those experiments go well. No, they don't. There's there's 100 percent of but going back to to Seth Godin, to our friend who I love Seth, you know, he has this thing that he says that it's sort of like two sides of the same card. And one side says this might work. The other side says this might not work. And that's sort of the way, you know, every artist or entrepreneur kind of you start out, right? A book, a photographer, whatever. This might work. It might not work. You have no idea. This sticking to your latest book, book two within there, ass equals commitment is in big, bold letters here on this page that I'm looking at. And then the, 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 that chapter opens up. We know what ass means in the physical sense. Now let's examine it as a metaphor. And as in his ass is on the line, or if she screws up, it'll be her ass. So was, did, did this come out? Was this developed, this title? Is, did, you, did you say this at a party or in a therapy session with another creator entrepreneur like me or any one of the hundreds of thousands of people who are listening right now? Or was this, I have an idea around commitment and I'm going to call it ass. This is very this is, I understand this is very particular, but I think it, it may unwind a little bit of your creative process and or creative genius. Which came first, the ass or the commitment? The ass came first. And in fact, this is true for me, at least in a lot of projects that I've been on. I can't even remember when that phrase came from. You know, it just sort of popped out somewhere in conversation or something like that. And then for years, I never really thought about it, except as kind of a little clever sort of bumper sticker, you know. Um, and then at some point I thought, let me delve into this. There's something he, real here, you know? So that's then sort of the real work started. But uh, getting back to what you're saying about ass equals commitment, we were talking earlier about the sort of the, the physical interpretation of that phrase is, you know, move your body into the dance studio, into the photography studio, whatever. But above and beyond that, 
in a metaphorical sense, what does ass mean when we say put your ass somewhere? What we really mean is commitment. And it's sort of like what I was saying before about the idea of turning pro. It's the idea, if, if you're an amateur, you have not committed, right? You're, you've got a plan B or you've got 10 plan Bs. But when you utterly commit, right, you burn the boats, then magic really starts to happen. And I think it, it happens in the way we see, I'm convinced our DNA changes when we actually commit to something, you know? But also in the real world, good things start to happen. People will give us jobs. People will give us money. Um, people will help us out, you know, and, 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 and strange good things will happen. And above and beyond that, I think when we talk about heaven and the muse, the, the gods and the goddesses, they can tell when we're committed or not. And when we are, when we burn the boats and we're totally into something, they'll start to give us their gifts, meaning ideas, meaning, you know, different visuals that would come to a photographer or a visual artist, you know. Um, this is apropos of nothing, but I, I had a, a, a dear female friend in New York years ago, and um, she used to, she was a painter, and she used to do these little kind of very dark miniatures. And I went away for a couple of years. And when I came back, she had totally changed the way she painted. And she was painting big and colorful. And I remember say, thinking to myself, wow, she's an artist now. Something happened. She went from being nowhere to being somewhere. And you could even see that, you know, she was going to go on and on and on from there. And I said, wow, that is amazing. That really gave me tremendous encouragement to see somebody actually get somewhere, you know. And again, it was, you know, it was through work and through a sort of a surrender to the process. Speaking of process, what I want to dig into, I, I try and ask every guest in the show a little bit more about their process. And you've already underscored the role that work plays. You're, just, you're a grinder. You want to sit down and you got to, you know, whatever, show me 100 crappy pages and then I'll, I'm sure there's some good, good stuff in there. But talk to us about your creative routine. Is there a routine you have? Obviously, you're very prolific. We can talk about some, you know, even fic works of fiction, Bagger Vance, you've you know, written screenplays. You talked about your screen. Your first dollar after 20-some years of working was you get paid 3500 bucks. I think, yeah, for yeah, a yeah. screenplay that never aired. And so there's, obviously, there's, you know, you've poured a ton of work and effort. But I'm curious what your creative process, are you a, write it down and edit, 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 and write garbage and then edit, edit, edit? Or do you go live life for a number of years, a, a topic strikes you, and then you have to go all in? Just give us a little picture. I know there's there are so many different styles, and I'm, I'm always intrigued a great by, question. By, uh, by people's different processes. What's yours? Well, I'm, I'm a total believer in the muse. And the goddess that gives artists ideas and inspires. I believe that 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 the works that we produce already exist on another dimension of reality, and that we are kind of assigned them by the goddess. And I really feel like if you ask me what is my occupation, I would say I am a servant of the muse. That's what I do, and I go from project to project, just just kind of like an actor. You know, we'll go from or whatever. But um, when I when I'm finished with one project, I kind of 
I sort of, I ask the goddess, what's the next, what do you want me to do next? And that's the real tricky part. And I, I hope that when I'm working on project seven, that project eight is already coming into me and I can sort of get started on it. So I don't hit any kind of a gap at the end of number seven. But, uh, my, my process in terms, I'll, I'll have, I'll have an idea for a book or, or something like that. And almost always I'll be full of doubt about the idea. My first response will be, oh, that is really a stupid idea. You know, nobody's going to be interested in that except you, me, meaning me. It's not commercial. It's a dumb idea. It's been done a million times. And that I recognize as my resistance to it, right? So the more resistance I feel, the more self-doubt, the more terror that I feel, the more sure I am that, that I have to do that. And so I, that, that's where sort of the work comes in, you know, where I'll have to, I'll say to myself, it's probably going to take three or four months of working on this thing, whatever it is, for me to realize whether, like Seth Godin, is this going to work or is it not going to work? And so then the, the work will come in and I will just sort of, you know, make myself every day, I'll hit it every day, keep working and working and working, and I'll still be full of doubt all the way through. Every day that I finish, I go, oh, this really sucks. This is going nowhere. I don't know what I'm doing, et cetera, et cetera. And then finally, at some point, it'll, I'll get my feet on the ground. I'll say, okay, whatever. What the I'm this far into it. I might as well keep going. And, but I'm, I'm always looking for uh, what the goddess is sending to me, you know, and usually it's something unexpected and usually it's something I'm afraid of. So I'm always sort of looking for what am I afraid of? What didn't I go deep enough into? I'm sure actors do this too, right? The, the ways to play a scene, right? I, there's a safe way to play the scene. And then there's a way that if I play it, I'll look like a real fool if I don't pull it off. Right. And that's always the way you want to go in, in the end. So I'm not sure, Chase, if that really answered. That. Oh, I, that's my process. But it's full of self-doubt all the way. <laughs> well, let's keep pulling on this this uh, thread of the scary, risky thing is ultimately, it sounds like you would say that that's where the best stuff lies. Is that fair to say? Yes. Okay. Yes. yes. So you, you, it's, it's, I had a, a very quick, the, the image that you planted in my mind of a, an audition for an actor or you're on set and there's, you know, 40 people around and all the different cameras and, and you try and pull it off and you come off and people don't understand it. They're like, I don't know what, you know, Jared Leto is a friend and been on the show before and we've seen him do some, you know, absolute wild thing with Joaquin Phoenix, Denzel Washington, uh, I mean, you, you, Bill like, Murray. Yeah, yeah, of course. Like there's just the, the people who've, ended in or acted in incredible scenes when you think about risks as a writer is the risk in not writing it down or is it in not sharing it or both it's not i don't think it's either actually it's uh uh if you have a scene or a um a concept that needs to be in, in a story. Like I'm thinking of the, the scene in the Godfather where Michael Corleone is sitting in the chair and he says, if Clemenza can figure a way to plant a weapon for me, then I'll kill them both. And he's talking about the correct, you know, Salazzo and the, and the, the cop, the 
played by Sterling Hayden. A scene like that could be written in a very safe way, you know, or, or, or not written at all. Um, and a lot of times I will write that scene first in a really safe way. And then I'll, and then I'll be thinking about it, you know, driving down the road or something. I'll say, boy, I really chickened out of that scene. You know, that there's a way to really make that scene really go. And it's sort of, it's, it's usually risky. You know, it's always risky. I think another great scene in Chinatown that she's my sister, she's my daughter. You know, that scene where Jack Nicholson is slapping Faye Dunaway around. She's my sister. She's my, I mean, that took guts to write that. You know? Wow. Yeah. When you watch it on screen, you go, oh, it couldn't be anything else. But I would bet if we had Robert Town here, he probably wrote that scene 10 different times before he got to that. Um, so, so is that is it, is it is it a process of excavating then? Because you talked about writing it once yes. and then you got to write it yeah, again and then. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, you you, uh, you just realize I've got to go a little bigger there. I've got to, you know, make it a little a little riskier. Because when you have that risky moment as you're as you're writing, you're thinking to yourself, boy, this could really fall on its face. This could really be dumb, you know. Um, but I think let me ask you visually in, in your work, Chase, do you, is there a parallel to that? There is the way that I talk about it. And uh, I'll put this in a commercial context, um, mostly because that is, I think, the more challenging than the one where you're just, you know, shooting for fine art purposes. So uh-huh. I'm, there's what's in the brief. The client asks you uh-huh. to shoot, shoot the, you know, the, the, the athlete like this or the model like that. And what I learned to do and now coach others is to try and get that in the can as fast as possible. Uh, yeah. And then yeah. you can show them like, okay, here's the brief. Here's what we've got on screen here because we're all, these images are digital and we're showing them in real time. And, and you, you know, you're able to demonstrate that you've captured the brief, but rather than I think what most either sophomoric, a sophomoric approach or young artists or, um, people who haven't truly sort of hit that a, a real stride in their career would do is that they look at that as the end. Uh-huh. And for me, what I experience when I'm at my best and what I coach when I talk on the subject is that's actually the beginning. Ah, yes. You, you basically execute the vision as the committee had arrived at it even if the committee was a committee of one or, or, uh-huh. or, you know, the thing that you said you were going to do or that the art director or the client or whatever. Yeah. But that's when you start to draw on all of your experience because the magic, you can't actually plan for the magic. Hollywood does a very good job of planning for magic, right? They can create a sunset with a certain kind of uh-huh. light and they can, you know, create a stunt with a certain set of, you know, safety precautions and, and experience and explosions or, or whatever you might have, but it's all of the things, your ability to be confident because of repetition in the moment after you've checked the box, that's where all the magic Mm. can happen. And that's where to use your actor, uh, analogy is that's where, you know, you get a good version of the scene in the can and then you go bananas. And it's always my experiences. It's always in the going bananas. Even if the client, the director, the fill in the blank coach, partner, whatever is uncomfortable 
in that time, I do not yet have the experience in my professional career of the final being selected from the safe, obvious thing that matched the brief. Ah. The brilliance is always what what sort of alchemy ah. are, are you able to pull together in the moment because the sun's at a certain place. It actually, it's not directly on you as the scene calls or as you saw it in your mind, but it's reflecting on this building and, it, and then it's extra intense. And that, you know, there's all these in the moment you're looking at, there's a construction site next door and it was driving you crazy the whole time because it's <laughs> kicking up dust. And now that backlit dust looks like, you know, puts an angelic uh -huh. behind the subject. There's, you know, that's the magic. And by putting yourself in that experience over and over and over again, you start to be able to look for and better see the magic. I don't know. Ah, great. That's a great answer. Uh -huh. You asked. <laughs> but we're here to hear from you. We're not here to hear from me. I've got hundreds. Uh, my voice is on this thing hundreds of times. And so I, I want to, if I can extract from the process questions, extract from all of your experience talking to other authors and creators. And I want to go back to Stephen Pressfield's childhood. <laughs> uh, you know, this is, go with me here on this. We really are. <laughs> <laughs> is this, did you, um, and, and I do this to explore the concept of identity before we started you know, recording, I shared with you that the people who are listening to the show, watching the show, they largely identify as creators, entrepreneurs, creator curious. Um, and I think there's a horrible myth in our culture that some people are creative and some people are not. And that, um, you know, the, those anointed folks who can, you know, put their hat on sideways and wear the ballet and smoke the cigar, they are the creative ones. And yet when I excavate most of the guests on the show, find out that there's an entire range of backgrounds, entire range of socioeconomic status. There's all kinds of different levels of privilege there. Are, you know, all, all these things are true. And yet I'm wondering for you, did you see yourself as someone who was creative early on in life? What was, you talked about resistance and I'm guessing this came into your definition, you're defining it, you're, you're, you're trotting out this beautiful understanding that helps us make sense of why we are crazy as artists. Did that, was that all, a part of your young life? Did you see yourself no. as someone who's created? Did you have your parents and career counselors were telling their, you to, to go be an accountant or, or uh, you know, something that was more practical? Talk to us about that, those times in your life. Um, yeah, that certainly there was, there were no uh, artists or entrepreneurs in my family. Um, it was, uh, I had a real, uh, you know, uh, mainstream middle class uh, upbringing. You know, I even my town that I come from is Pleasantville. There really is a place called Pleasantville, <laughs> and uh, and um, everybody in my family were they were all uh, the men. The, the wives were all homemakers, and the men were all um, guys that w wore suits and ties and went into a city and worked in a job, and. Uh, my my mom and dad came out of the depression and they definitely uh wanted me to do something that was safe and secure um and i believed in that too you know because uh and i remember that when i went to college i first i got into uh i went to duke and i got in in the engineering school and my dad was really happy about that because he thought ah this is a great you know if you're an engineer you can always have a job but as soon as I got down there, like my first week, is in, I switched to English. I switched to the liberal arts college. 
And that, believe it or not, that was like, uh, I don't know, that was like coming out or something to my dad. It was like, freaked him out. You know, I thought, oh my God, he's going to become a long-haired hippie, whatever, and he's going to go down the tubes, you know? Um, and actually, the whole English department thing at Duke was terrible for me. I never learned a damn thing. But um, uh, it wasn't until, I don't know if I'm really answering the question, Jay. Oh, yeah, this is beautiful. This is the good stuff. My first job uh, as a grown-up was in advertising in New York. I worked for, well, I worked for Gray Advertising as like a, a uh, an office boy. And then I got a job as a junior copywriter at Benton and Bowles. And um, I had a boss named Ed Hannibal. And I've told this story before, forgive me if you heard it. And he wrote a book. He wrote a novel and it became a hit. It was called Chocolate Days, Popsicle Weeks. And he quit his job and he was a star. He was famous. And uh, so I'm 22 years old. I said, well, shit, why don't I do that too? So I never had intended or ever thought about being, for me, like trying to write a book was like taking a tab of acid about that big, you know, it was just way over my head. I had no clue. And my, you know, I got 99% of the way through being supported by my young wife and uh, I blew it up. Resistance. Resistance reared its ugly head, and I blew it up, and I sort of dropped. I'm telling you more than you need to know. I know, Jason. No, I love it. I fell out of the bottom of the middle class, and I be, and I spent, you know, I don't know, five or six, seven years working, driving trucks and working in the oil fields and stuff like that. And I was really, um, I don't know if I want to say lost, because looking back on it, it was the best thing that could ever have happened to me. It was a great writer's education. But so I sort of stumbled into the concept of of being a writer through the back door and through really, you know, being an idiot. I signed up for uh, an e-ticket ride that I didn't had no idea what it was. And once I was sort of on that ride, I couldn't get off of it until I sort of got to the other end of it, you know. So that it was an accident that sort of turned out to be what it should have been all along. But this is this is so important for people to hear. I'm thank you for sharing that. This this idea that someone like you who has written, you know, amazing works, sold millions of copies. These barnstormers, you know, Bagger Vance, Turning Pro, Artist Journey, you know, your your new book, put your ass where your heart wants to be. That I think so many people believe that everyone like you who has achieved your level of success magically you know followed the obvious linear path walked in the front door shook hands with everyone sat down did the work and then got the high five and the pizza (laughs) the gold medal and it it just you know if you are this is speaking to you right now and you're listening or watching the show i just i have to you know, ask you to, you know, rewind, hit the rewind button on the podcast one minute ago where you, Stephen Presfield, was saying, I came in through the back door, to the side door, through an ad job that I had, I was inspired by a boss. The boss made some crazy shit happen. And, you know, you at least put yourself in the arena to have a shot at that by starting to do the work. That's definitely not the front door. The front door would be, you know, getting that English degree, learning a ton at Duke, 
you know, having an internship, then, you know, writing for yeah. a, a writer and, you know, you've basically been a writer your whole life. You have a early book that is sort of successful. Someone takes a chance on you. <laughs> and where I'm going to all this is the hero's journey, right? You have uh, in the artist's journey, another work of yours, the wake of the hero's journey and the lifelong pursuit of meaning. So you, I'm going to quote you back to yourself here. I have a theory about the hero's journey. We all have one. We have many, in fact, but our primary hero's journey is the passage we live out in real life before we find our calling. The hero's journey ends when, like Odysseus, we return home to Ithaca, to the place from which we started. That is beautiful, the prose, but the idea is even more powerful. Talk about a little bit more around this hero's journey. You have clearly... You know, if you layer in what you just told us about your experience and how you came in through the back door, that is a, a hero's journey unto itself. I'm wondering if you can talk to the people right now who are listening that are full of self-doubt and thinking that because they don't have the pedigree, they don't have the a life that they think fuels the art that they appreciate. What can you tell these people about their own life and their own hero's journey? Well, I do think that uh, the hero's journey is, it, we all have one, and it's mandatory, I think. You know, although a lot of people don't live it out. For one reason or another, they take, you know, more of a safe course, you know. Um, and again, I think you pay for that in the end. But uh, for me, my sort of wanderings in the wilderness were kind of my hero's journey and in, in the sense that um, uh, I think, for one thing, you're always lost in a hero's journey. You never, it's never like, oh, I'm Conan the Barbarian and I'm, you know, going, that sort of thing. You're always lost. You always feel like an idiot. You don't know what you're doing. You're stumbling blindly through a maze. Um, and, uh, and at some point, you do return home to Ithaca. There is sort of, for me, and by the way, Chase, I'm going to throw something else in here. I have just finished writing a book about this that's going to come out sometime in around Christmas. And I would love to come back on your show and talk about it as a... 100%. It's happening. Uh, we're planning. It's already in the books. We're planning. But in, in that book, I really go into all absolute detail about where I was and what was happening. And, so, and the reason I wanted to do that was for, like anybody that might be listening to this now and be full of self-doubt... This sort of journey of mine is like banging into one wall after another after another. So hopefully when anybody would read this, they would say to themselves, well, shit, if this guy could do that, I know I can do what I'm doing. You know? um, but uh, at some point you do sort of come back home. And, it's, and what that means, I think, is you come to a realization about your own life and your own calling that you say to yourself, you know, if I had been awake 20 years ago, 15 years, I would have known this then. I sort of knew it all along. I've been running away from it all this time, you know, and now I've just finally got to accept it, you know. And for me, it was what I had to accept was that that being a writer was what I really wanted to be, even though I had no clue if I would ever succeed. And in fact, sort of the moment for me that I would say of coming home it was another 20 years or more before I had any success at all after that. So that's another thing I would say to anybody listening that a lot of times we're so impatient, particularly this generation today, sort of the Instagram, TikTok generation, 
you feel like, oh, I'm just waiting for that breakthrough and everything's going to change, you know? But no, I mean, you have the breakthrough and then you got another 20 years after that. At least that's my experience. The only, the good news is once you have that breakthrough where you do say, okay, this is my calling. I don't give a shit if I fail. I have no choice. I can't do anything else. This is who I am. You know, I've got to be that even though you're not succeeding yet, you're on the right path and you know it and your feet are on the ground and you feel okay about yourself. Even as you're struggling, you're still, you feel like, uh, you know, I'm heading towards the North Star. I'm on the right track. And even if I never get there, at least, you know, I'm doing the right thing. Mm. I, I wrote a, a lot about that in my, my last book called Creative Calling. The idea that you are sharing in a future book, your story is uh, as, as the hero of your own journey. I am all over that. We will 100% have you back on the show. Um, before I let you go, it's, I think it's important for us to recap that your latest book is absolutely excellent. Put your ass where your heart wants to be. Uh, it's succinct. It's like a laser beam at so many of the insecurities and the narratives that we have told ourselves. And for the folks who are familiar with your work prior to listening to our show today, and especially with books like The War of Art, Winning the Inner Creative Battle, uh, Others, Nobody Wants to Read Your Shit, Turning Pro, The Artist's Journey, uh, those are absolutely required reading for, for anyone. So I want to say just a personal debt of gratitude to you for taking the time for helping all of your friends at two in the morning and just getting you on the path. Like, oh, God damn it. I got, I'm going to write this down now. Yeah. Just so I don't have to keep saying it at two in the morning. Thank you for doing that work. I think you've, uh, you've made the world a more creative place because of it. And uh, I'm, consider myself personally in debt to you and your, your vision. Um, and that you are, I think it's also really interesting to hear this idea that we explored earlier about talent is bullshit and hard work is so important. And here you are, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about put your ass where your heart wants to be, which is out uh, July 12th, I think. Um, and we will drop this podcast in time with that to help you our, our community is very good about buying books uh -huh. for, for authors. But the fact that we're already now talking about this book is other book that you've already finished. Like just rock that. If you are, you know, for everyone who's in their own head right now about wherever they are in their creative career, we're talking to a world-class author who's had sold millions of books about his next book and he's already got his next one. It sounds like virtually completed. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, talk about prolific. Um, Stephen, is there any? Let me jump in for one thing here. Please, God, please do. Um, sometimes uh, uh, people might will ask me, you know, what do you do between books, or how do you handle that period between books? Which, of course, applies to any creative field at all, right? Dance, theater, music, whatever. And my answer to that is, there never should be a between books. You should always be. You know, that's the dip that, that Seth Godin talks about. You should always be working by when you're halfway through book number eight, you should already be starting book number nine. So that if you finish book number eight on Tuesday, you start book number nine, you're on, you're in, you're already 90 pages into the next book, you know, on Wednesday. 
And because the, the reason I say that is because that gap, particularly if you finish one piece of work and you put it out there to the world and you're like waiting for the response, you might as well put a gun to your head and just pull the trigger. It couldn't be anything worse you could do for yourself. As, and everybody does it too. But uh, whereas if you keep working, you got the next one. And then, then when number eight fails or goes out there and sinks without a trace, you say to yourself, well, I don't care. I'm on number 11 right now, you know, and I have high hopes for number nine and number 10. And that way you keep working and you're, and you're always, you know, in, in the muse's good graces, even if you're not in the great good graces of uh, the New York Times bestseller list. And let me say to you, Chase, thank you for having me. Thank you for what you're doing on this podcast and all the people that you've helped and you're inspiring. You know, God bless you. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. You know, it's a great thing. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you so much and, and your work, Stephen. Thank you for being on the show. Looking forward to having you back with this next book. Uh, and again, folks, please, I cannot recommend enough. It's so it's such a treat to get a, a copy of this so early, Stephen. Put your ass where your heart wants to be. It's just an absolute gem. Thank you so much. And to everybody out there, uh, this has uh, been a masterclass in how to live your dreams, whether that's career, hobby, or life, um, which is the goal of the show. So Stephen hit that on the head. And uh, from both myself, Stephen, we bid you adieu until next time. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, Chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show and or Chase Jarvis, Creative Live, any of that stuff on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests either on social media or through my text community. All of that is pure gold. I want to take a second to say thank you. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive, positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing the show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together. <laughs>